0: Good morning. It is uh, such a blessing for Linda and me to be able to be back here today after an absence of two Sundays. That's so unusual for us. Sometimes we're away one, but to be away uh, for two is uh, so rare, and we miss being here. Uh, We had a wonderfully blessed visit to uh, Poland and Ukraine, and uh, we're looking forward to telling more about that this evening at six, and I hope you can come and be a part of that, but uh, we just want you to know how much we appreciated your prayers, your good wishes, all those expressions of, are you out of your mind? Uh, we know where those came from, and so we we appreciate all of that, uh, but we are indeed glad to be back and, and so thankful for it, so thankful for this church. And our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, just over and over, ask that we express to you Their love, their appreciation, their gratitude for the support that they receive always, but especially now during this time of war uh, when things are so much more difficult and so strenuous for them. And we'll be talking tonight about more about how uh, what we are doing to try to alleviate that. Long before our Savior Jesus ever came to earth, the prophet Zechariah. Had told Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a f- colt, the foal of a donkey. But did you know that before Jesus came, no one, no one thought that humility was a good thing? Nobody believed humility was a good thing. You see, in the ancient world, you were humble only if somebody humbled you. You were humble because you couldn't be anything else. You were humble because you were powerless. You were humble because you were weak. You were humble because you were at the mercy of others. And that's how the ancient world viewed humility. It was degrading. But then Jesus came and show that humility is not a weakness. In fact, it is a power. He came and showed that humility is the ability to lower oneself for the benefit of others. The ability to put yourself in second place or perhaps even in last place so that others can in some way be benefited. It's the ability to control your view of yourself so that you're realistic about who you are and about what you are, and to control your view of others and to see their importance above your own. Humility, simply put, is the strength to lower yourself for the good of others. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, wasn't it? That in humility, Jesus humbled himself and went to the cross. And that's why you and I have eternal life today, because of his humility. Now, Jesus' twelve apostles struggled with that, according to Matthew 18 and other places in the scripture. Matthew 18 opens with a conflict situation. The disciples approach Jesus and they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I want you to understand, first of all, that's not necessarily a bad question. We ought to all want to be great in God's kingdom. We ought to all want to be great in God's service. We ought to all want to know, what does God view as greatness? And how would he have us be great in his service? And so there's nothing wrong with their question, but the problem comes in with the motive. Why do we want to be great? What were the disciples really wanting to know? What did they mean by greatest? Greatest how? It's from the parallels in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel that show us that their motive was, in fact, the problem behind their question because they were quarreling about this. They were bickering about which of them was the greatest. That's really what they're asking. They're going to the Lord and saying, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what they're really concerned about. In today's terminology, we might ask the question this way. What does greatness in the kingdom look like? And so Jesus showed them what it looks like. He took a little child and put him in their midst, and he said, this is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. It looks like a little child. And he said, unless you turn and become like that child... Not only will you not be great in the kingdom of heaven, notice what he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. Without the humility of the child, neither they nor we can get in to God's heavenly kingdom. They needed to know that. They needed to turn to become like children, and so do we. They needed to repent of our lack of humility Whoever humbles himself like this child, Jesus said, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But what was Jesus getting at when he spoke of the humility of a child? What does that look like? After all, children can be somewhat demanding, can't they? Yes. They can be somewhat self-centered, can't they? We come into the world that way. Little babies come into the world kicking and screaming literally for attention. Some don't ever get over it. (laughs) Some folks do it all their lives. Kicking and screaming for attention, wanting everything to be about them. And so when Jesus says you've got to turn and become like this child, we need to understand what does he he mean by that? What is the humility of a child? Well, in Jesus' day, the humility of children lay in the fact that they had no status. They didn't have any status. Now that didn't mean people didn't love them because they did. It doesn't mean they weren't important because they were. But they didn't have status. They didn't control anything or anybody. They were not given undue leeway in determining anything. They were simply raised to be who they were and they did what they were told in the direction of other people and they were not regarded as people with status. And one of the probable reasons for this is that it's been estimated that more than half, more than half of all children in Jesus' time did not make it past age 16. And so you didn't invest too much in one child because you, you just kind of knew the odds are this child will not ever even become an adult. And so children just didn't have the status of people in the community. They didn't contribute to society. And they were not taken into consideration in decisions. They had no status. They weren't over anybody, and they didn't try to be. So when Jesus says to the disciples, Here's what greatness in the kingdom looks like. It looks like the humility of a child. It looks like giving up this thirst for status. It looks like accepting who you are and what you are and simply being grateful for that and not trying to get the upper hand over anybody. Now, that's the very opposite of the 12, isn't it? That's the very opposite of the way that they were. You remember that time that James and John, through their mom, came to Jesus asking for the right hand and the left hand places in his kingdom. Those were status positions. It's like asking to be made vice president and secretary of state when you get into the kingdom. We want those positions of authority. We want to be closer. We want to be right next to you. We want to be the number two and number three figures in your kingdom. We want that kind of power. We want that kind of status. What were they doing? They were trying to get a leg up on the other 10. And the other 10 didn't fail to notice that. And The Bible says that they were indignant when they heard it. And so now the ball is really rolling. You've got the two saying, we want that kind of, of status. And the other 10 hear it, and they're indignant. And so what are they indignant about? Their humility is not exactly shining either, is it? Their indignation comes from the fact that they're probably thinking, what makes you think you'd be the best number two or number three? I kind of wanted that spot for myself. And so you've got a, a turmoil among the 12 disciples because they are trying to gain status over one another. And Luke tells us that even at the Last Supper, as they were gathering around the table to prepare for Jesus' death, they were still arguing about who was the greatest. Imagine, he's about to humble himself and go to the cross for their sins and yours and mine, and they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. I suspect it had something to do with where you sat at the table, because in that society, everything was status-oriented. And so where you sat at a dinner where you sat at the table had to do with who you were and your level of importance as compared to everybody else. And so you can just kind of see them coming into that upper room and they're kind of jostling one another and they're trying to get to that place right next to Jesus and they're asking each other, what makes you think you belong there? I think you ought to sit there. You go sit down there. Why should I go down there? You go down there. They're still arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I suspect that that's the reason why John 13 says that at that supper, Jesus took a bowl of water and a towel, and he got down on his knees, and he went around and he washed their feet. The lowliest task given to the lowliest servant. And Jesus took it in order to teach an object lesson in humility. You see, Jesus knew that at this new enterprise that he calls the church in Matthew 16, 18, and Matthew 18, 17, that if this new enterprise called the church was going to succeed as God wanted it to, this attitude had to go. This attitude, especially among those who were to lead that kingdom, had to get it together. They had to practice humility, or there wasn't much hope for the future. And he's about to go away, and they haven't gotten it yet. But it wasn't just a matter of getting their heads on straight about themselves. Humility also involves how we look at others, how we value them in relation to ourselves. And Jesus addresses that in Matthew 18. If you look at verses 5 and 6, the focus shifts from becoming like a little child to valuing God's other children the focus shifts. Now it's not just be like a little child, but as verse 10 puts it, don't despise one of my little children. And you'll notice from verse 6 that he says, one of these little ones who believe in me. You see, he's, he's gradually shifting that imagery from a literal child to a spiritual child. What this is really all about, Jesus says, is not just the way you look at yourselves, but the way that you look at each other, and the way you look at my other children, the way you look at these little ones who believe in me, the way, the way you value or devalue them. is what this is all about, the ones who believe in me. The issue is between receiving God's other children or causing them to sin. That's the contrast Jesus sets up. Do we receive his little children or, or do we cause them to sin? And we can't miss the seriousness of that decision. Because Jesus said, if you cause them to sin, if you take option B... Then it would be better for you to have a millstone fastened around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That would be better than what awaits us if we don't receive one another. Verses seven to nine may sound like a change in subject. Jesus says, Temptations to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person by whom the temptation comes. He's not changing subject because notice back up in verse 6, he had talked about causing one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. He's still talking about humility. Temptations to sin are going to come. But he says, you'd better make sure that you're not the cause of it. You'd better make sure that you don't cause one of my little ones to stumble. It's how our attitudes and our actions toward others can affect them and whether or not we cause them to sin. Yes, Jesus says, there will always be temptations to sin. That's part of life in this world. That's going to happen. But he says, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes, if we are the source of that temptation. And in the drastic language of verses 8 and 9, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to go into eternity without one hand than it is to have both hands and be cast into the hell of fire. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Because it's better to go into eternity blind than it is with both eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. This is serious business. This thing about humility is not, something, it's not an elective. It's not something that we can choose or not choose. It's something that we choose or else. And if something in our lives is causing us to disregard others to the point that we cause them to sin, we'd better get rid of it. Lest it cost us our own souls. What was Jesus talking about? What is the sin That our lack of humility might cause somebody else to commit. How does one person's lack of humility lead another one to sin? And why is it that important? Verse 10 gives a clue. See that you do not despise one of these little ones who believe in me. The Greek word for despise means to look down on or to count as having no value. Make sure, Jesus says, that you don't look at one of my followers, any one of my followers, and say, that is a person of no value. That is a person I don't have to consider. That is a person I don't have to take into account. That is a person whose eternity is none of my business. That is a person whose spiritual welfare is not my affair. Jesus says, do not say that. It's regarding ourselves as so much more important than others that we don't care what they think or how they feel or what their needs are, and what's the result? We may drive them out of the kingdom entirely. We may make them feel that they don't count, so they just abandon their place in the kingdom. They just stop following Jesus. They just give up. James chapter 2 gives a specific example of this. James 2 talks about a poor man coming into the assembly of the church. And apparently James knew that this had happened in the churches to which he was writing. (laughs) That this poor man comes in. He's shabby. He's dirty. He's obviously of no account to the world. And so he comes in among the people of God. And at the same time, a rich man shows up. And you can tell that he's rich by his clothing and by his jewelry. And I've always suspected that if you went out in the synagogue parking lot, you'd see him drive up in a very fine chariot. And so they know who he is. He's somebody in the world. And so what happens? He says he receives honor and respect. And the poor man is told, you can stand over there, or if you must sit, you can sit at my feet. Just kind of get out of the way. Because I'm ushering this rich man to a place of honor. And the poor man is humiliated. He's disrespected. At best, just ignored. What does that do to him? How does it make him feel? What does he think about that? Will he come back? Does God value him if those who are supposed to be God's people don't? But it's not just about rich and poor. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11:22 expresses the same concern when he talks about the Corinthians going ahead with their meal and making such a travesty of it that he said it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating because they refuse to wait for their poorer brethren who have nothing to bring to the table literally they can't contribute to the meal and so the others just go ahead They, they don't count they're not bringing anything anyway They don't even know how to make a banana cream pudding. And and so just forget them. Let's, Let's eat. And what does Paul say? He said, you have dishonored, you have humiliated the poor. You have humiliated them. And what does humility have to do with that? It has everything to do with it. We tend to treat some folks better than others because they make us feel better about ourselves. Plain and simple. We like being around them. We like them being around us. Somehow they make us feel better about ourselves. They build our egos and others don't. And so we want to be around the ones that make us feel better and stay away from the ones who don't. And it doesn't have to be a poor person. It may be somebody whose skin is a different color. It may be somebody whose language is not the same as our own. It may be somebody whose ideas are different from our own. But for for whatever reason, they do not enhance us. Or at least we feel they don't. And so we push them away or we keep them at arm's length because they don't affirm our view of ourselves. And so we just disregard them or ignore them or cast them aside. We don't care if they're in the kingdom or not. We don't care what happens to them. Jesus goes ahead and tells a parable that shows that to God, every single person matters. That beautiful parable about the, the one lost sheep the one lost sheep sought by the shepherd. And his lesson is clear that they and we must be sure that all of the sheep matter to us as well if we want to be in his kingdom. Now back to Jesus and the 12, he clearly rebuked their self-centeredness and their desire for status Over one another. That's what they were after. That's what they were looking for. And he rebukes it. And everything he said to them. He says to us. Greatness. In his kingdom. Is the consistent practice. Of putting. Ourselves. Lower than others. For their benefit. And lowering ourselves. To serve them. Not not how many people we can get to serve us. And when we practice that kind of humility, and it takes practice, when we practice that kind of humility, the church becomes what God wants the church to be. And until we're practicing that kind of humility, we are nothing like his kingdom. And we will fail at being his people. And the world will know that we are not, we are not truly following the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Thomas Long has said it far better than I ever could, so I'm just gonna read his words. He said, the church is not merely a religious institution or a society for the preservation of good ideas about God. Do you get that? The church is not merely a religious institution or a society for the preservation of good ideas about God. The church is a colony of the kingdom of heaven. It is Christ's own saving presence in human society. In the terms of Matthew's gospel, the church is the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the leaven of mercy in the loaf of the world's misery. When the world looks at the church, it should see not simply another social organization trying to raise money, And keep its membership up. It should see a living embodiment of the kingdom of heaven, a community of faith, where leaders serve instead of swagger, where the weak are nourished instead of cast aside, where people who lose their way are not forgotten, but sought and restored, where people cultivate mercy and forgiveness, as if they were the rare flowers of heaven. So it's not surprising that not once but three times the Bible says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before him by deciding to follow Jesus and pray that God will help us all to humble ourselves before one another so that the world can see him in us. Kelly.